0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our QA where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We realize that we can take Scripture out of context, and that many people do. We want to keep it in context. We find, want to find out what God meant to say, not what we want it to say. We want to approach the Scriptures not trying to support what we already believe, but finding out what God wants because the Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God. Now, the beginning or the first question of our Q&A is from our study last Wednesday night. And we, uh, we have our first question and we connected to that study. And in that study, we talked about what changes when we become a Christian. It's in Galatians chapter three, Paul has talked about why we are not under the law and how the law was insufficient and what the law did very well, which is to show us our sin and what the law did very poorly, which was to actually save us and change us. And so the question was brought in after we talked about what kind of things change when we become a Christian and four things that Galatians tells us at the end of Galatians 3 that the law can't do that are done in Jesus. And so someone asked, What if you get saved and don't change? Now, I don't know exactly where this question is coming from. It could be coming from someone who says, from someone who says, what if uh, I I know someone and uh, they, they got saved and they didn't change? To that, I would say, well, we don't know whether they made a genuine commitment to Christ. Because changes are going to happen. You are going to be transformed. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and behold, everything becomes new. Uh, And the Bible says, if we say that we we don't, if we say we love him, but don't keep his commandments, then we're lying. So there are changes that take place inside of us. Now, this question could also be coming from someone who feels like I gave my life to Christ and I don't see those changes in my life. Are you, do you want to know God more? Do you want to worship him? Are you hungry for his word? Do you want to know him? Do you feel like you haven't changed because you still struggle with sin? The Bible says that the spirit battles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So we don't do the things that we ask. The simple question, and this is really easy to answer. If you give your life to Christ, if you get saved and you don't change, then you haven't genuinely gotten saved. However, when you're evaluating your own life, sometimes you're not the best one to evaluate it. And sometimes you want there to be these radical changes that take place and God's doing this over a period of time. Serve God, love him, call out upon his name. And if someone says they got saved, but their life doesn't change, and they probably never did. And I and I tell people, hey, examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. I don't have any problem with letting someone know, you need to make sure you're in the faith. The Bible tells us that, by the way. Some people say, I'm stealing people's assurance. The assurance that we have in Christ is that we wanna do what he wants us to do. If you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't wanna do what God wants me to do, then I don't know that you can be confident that you are saved. If you say, I'm a believer and I'm struggling with doing the things that God wants me to do, that's a whole nother issue. People struggle, but you do end up keeping his commandments and you do end up going to him for forgiveness when you do struggle. If you are interacting with someone and they haven't changed, you don't want to really judge them. You don't want to say you're not genuinely saved, but you do expect to see fruit at a certain point in time as people surrender their lives to Christ. So the truth is that when we give our life to Jesus, there are radical changes that take place inside of us and that is awesome. We get the imputed righteousness of Christ. We hunger suddenly for the, the Word of God. The Holy Spirit starts to outflow us, outflow out from us. The Holy Spirit moves inside of us, and we gain so many things. We're adopted into the family of God, which could never happen by the law. The law was weak, it can't save you, but God ended up doing the work that God in, wanted to do in getting us saved, knowing Him, loving Him, and living wholeheartedly for him. So I wanna say thank you guys for joining us today. I appreciate you, I appreciate you being here. If you have a question, then write the word question out and then write your question and then reread it a couple of times to make sure it makes sense. And we'll go ahead and take them in the order uh, that they come in. So we have a, uh, our first question from Andre. First again, Andre says, Jesus tells us Satan throne, Satan's throne is located in Pergamus. Revelation 2, 12, and 13. Is this still true today? If so, I'll never visit Turkey again. Well, all of the churches were in Turkey, um, Andre, but I, I understand what you're saying. Um, so, gosh, it's only, it's been two years since I've covered the seven churches. And I know that there's some stuff about Pergamus and why Satan's Throne. It said that Satan's Throne is there. Um, let's go ahead. You know what? Let's just go there and read this and we'll see if we can gain anything from it. Uh, I wish I I wish I wish had a better memory, but sometimes I got to go back and refresh myself uh, on certain things. So, but we're just going to go ahead and read um, that's Revelation 12. Let's just go ahead and read Revelation 2, and we'll go to uh, verses to the beginning of the, is it the compromising church, Laodicea? Yeah, the beginning of the compromising church. Uh, So, so this is Revelation 2, 12 through 13. So, let me go ahead and put that up on the screen for you so this is the compromising church to the angel of the church of pergamos right these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword i know your works and where you dwell where satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith even in the days of antipas my faithful martyr who was killed among you where satan dwells but i have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of balaam who taught Bala to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate, repent, or else I will come quickly and fight against you, against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it." So each of these letters that were written, coming back to verse 12 here, each of these letters that were written had certain aspects of the area around them that were pointed out. And I can't remember exactly if if I'm right, there was a temple to Zeus there with on a huge throne And he's making a comparison of what happens there with Satan on his throne and Satan having dominion over the area. And it is interesting to me that different areas held different things and all of these, like I said before, are in Turkey. So it is interesting to me that different regions seem to deal with different things. And I think that they do so today. So to answer your question, I don't know whether it's still true today. And um, I, I visited Turkey. Uh, great place. I think you should. Um, nevertheless, I understand what you're saying. Thank you, Andre, uh, for that. Sorry, I couldn't be of more help. Um, I wish I wish I had a better memory that I could go back and just remember. You know, sometimes you're, you're putting two studies together a week, right? Um, one for Wednesday and one for Sunday. And then come back two years later and try to remember exactly what was said about a certain area. It's hard for me. Uh, certain people can handle it. It's difficult for me. Uh, so we have a question from Sharon. Sharon says, "Question: The Holy Spirit, w- w- the Holy Spirit lives in us. What happens to the Holy Spirit at our death? So our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the when we die, it's the absence of our soul or our spirit." from the body and the Holy Spirit is still going to be with us. And we're going to go up to be in the presence of God. Uh, It's funny how, when you don't think of things um, and then you start thinking about it, you think, okay, well, exactly how does this work? So I die. My spirit, my soul leave the body. My body's left behind. God will resurrect it one day. And I am in the presence of God to be absent with this body is to be present with God. And so I would assume that we're translated immediately. We're translated immediately, we're in the presence of God, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I would say the Holy Spirit doesn't remain with my body because my body died. And so now I'm in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit is there. So I hope that helps, Sharon again it's the kind of question that's a a little bit difficult to answer maybe you just kind of think it through uh, to come to the point uh the holy spirit is with you in heaven after you go and you are in the presence of the lord jari good to see you we have a question here from jari jari says question when rahab hid the spies was she lying are there certain lies that are not like saying, does this suit make me look fat? I would say not so. I don't hurt friends' feelings in this way. All right, so, um, so Jari, the question is, was Rahab okay for lying? In fact, she's rewarded for it. And the handmaidens in Egypt who said that the Israelites are not like Egyptian women They give birth before we ever get there. Remember, they were supposed to kill the firstborn male children and they didn't do it. So they lied as well. I think, you know, we live in a world where things are not always cut and dry, black and white. The Ten Commandments don't say thou shalt not lie. It says thou shalt not bear false witness, which is which is speaking poorly against someone. Although the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. So we probably wanna stay as far away from lies as we possibly can. Um, If someone were to break into my house and say, where is your wife at? I'm gonna say, she's not here, even if she's somewhere in the house. Because there's a time of protection and there's a time of doing things. There's a way of interacting with evil people that you just have to interact with them. Uh, I wanna be as truthful as I possibly can. Uh, Like you, Jari, I'm just not gonna be mean to someone you don't have to have brutal honesty. You can have honesty without having brutal honesty. And so the question of whether or not you can tell a lie, I guess it depends on the reason for the lie. Are you telling a lie for the reason most people tell lies, which is to make yourself look better? They tell lies to pump themselves up, to make themselves look better. Are you telling a lie to protect someone? And here we have two evils you have a guy who wants to come into the house to kill your wife, and you're telling a lie. Both are evil. At some point, you choose the lesser evil to be able to do that. And it's interesting, in the law, there were qualifications. In other words, you could break the law in circum- certain circumstances. You couldn't do any work on the Sabbath day, but if your donkey fell into a pit, then you could you could go in and get the donkey. No one was supposed to eat the showbread, but when David's life was on the line, he was able to eat the showbread. And there are other examples of this that we find in the pages of Scripture. So there seems to be exceptions to rules. And I think lying is one of those that has some exceptions. Although the main reason for bearing, not bearing false witness or for lying to protect oneself or for your own pride which is the reason that most people lie, would be wrong no matter what. But if it's something that is trying to to do something, stop an evil that is greater, or not to be so brutally honest that you end up hurting their feelings, I think that that's good. And I even think it carries some wisdom with it. Uh, There are gonna be a lot of people who disagree with me on this one though, Jari. By the way, Um, I have friends of mine that we have some kind of an ongoing banter about this. And when you bring up what if somebody came into your house, they'll say, don't even go there. Don't even go there. It's not going to happen. Well, I don't know if it's not going to happen or not, but I think um, we should understand that Take walking through life takes wisdom and interaction takes wisdom as well. And sometimes, um, sometimes you, you tell a lie to be able to protect someone. And I would say that even though it's extreme cases that that happens to, there are extreme cases that happen somewhere every day. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate uh, that uh, question. Uh, we have another question here from Keith. Keith, good to see you. Uh, Keith says, I want to start doing devotionals daily with my children. Are there any devotionals you would recommend? Uh, no, you know, I don't. I don't know of any for kids. Uh, Keith, I'm sorry, Um the way that I did devotionals with my kids was to tell them stories that were in the Bible. Like I would go back into first Samuel and I would make my way through first Samuel and kind of tell them the story. I didn't necessarily read it. I'm sure there's a lot of really good ones that are out there, but I don't know of any. I, it's just, it's a good thing to be able to be pouring into our children. The Bible says, raise them up in the way of the Lord. And when they're old, they won't depart. So really good thing for for you to be doing devotionals with them, get the word of God in them, uh, really work with them. It will, God will honor that, I believe, and um, your children will come to the Lord. But sorry, I um, another another strikeout. I don't know. All right, so we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands has, um, what study Bible do you recommend? and why. Um, again, fact check these hands. I haven't used a study Bible in a long time. Uh, the um, I used the Ryrie for a while. Uh, uh, the Schofield Bible has good commentary that's in it. The Word for Today Bible has Chuck Smith commentaries that are in it. Uh, I like the, the footnotes in the King James Version of the Bible. I like, the, I like what I can learn from those footnotes, and I use them a lot but as far as just like a really good, like Schofield study Bible, I haven't used one in a long time. I've kind of got my system of research down and, and when I want to research a topic, I take off in researching that topic. Um, I think that any good study Bible that you get, just know that where there's a commentary with it or whether you're looking at the footnotes, that those footnotes are not inspired but they're telling you more about the manuscripts and what certain manuscripts were and did and what other manuscripts didn't do. Uh, so it can be helpful It um, and uh, hopefully that will help. I think um, online you have Blue Letter Bible and Bible Hub and those are the kind of things that I go to on a regular basis. Uh, I will have my Bible open and be reading it but I will also stop and look up things on Bible Hub and Blue Letter Bible because I can look at different translations. I can look at the Greek words. I can look at lexicons. I can look at notes, especially on Blue Letter Bible. I can look up commentaries of Matthew Henry or David Guzik. Um, So those are the ones that I'm using today instead of like a, a Ryrie Study Bible or a Word for Today Study Bible. I think any of those could be good, but I also think probably you know, Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub are as good as anything that you're going to get. There's also uh, Bible software you can purchase. And um, I have some, I have logos, but I don't use it anymore just because I'm able to find what I want to find apart from that. And um, so not really using it. All right. So um, we have a question, another question. So thank you for your question, by the way. Uh, Fact check these hands. We have a question from uh, Empress Kimberly. Uh, Kimberly, good to see you, uh, Pastor. Could you explain many are called but few are chosen? Yeah, this is gonna this is gonna depend on what your view is on reformed theology. There are or five point Calvinism. They're basically the same thing. So five point Calvinism has, I I think really all of the points, except maybe for once saved, always saved. And I'm kind of leaning towards once saved, always saved there. But there are certain passages in the Bible that cause me to have some questions. Um, but the Calvinism says that there's limited atonement, that Jesus died on the cross only for the elect that God would choose. And that there's irresistible grace. That is, those who are chosen by God are chosen and cannot be lost but they will be saved no matter what. And I think that both of these, for my opinion, are wrong. And they will go to these verses and talk about being chosen and called. Many many are, are saved. Uh, many are called, but few are chosen. And they'll talk about God calling out to people, but only choosing certain people to be able to be saved. That's not what I think that's going on here. I think that what God is doing is calling everyone Many are called and everyone gets a call from God. The Bible says whosoever can be saved. It's not limited. Jesus died once for all. It's all of mankind and all of the sins. Even though he doesn't forgive all sins, he made provision for all sins. And so God's call goes out. But those who are chosen are the ones who respond. I think salvation is kind of like a marriage both parties have to agree. Both parties have to say, yes, I do. And so when God calls you and draws you, then you have to say, yes, I do. And I do know that God does work in people's lives, stronger in certain people's lives than he does in other people's lives to bring them to Christ. But we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what God's doing. So I think many are called would be God calling many people to come to Christ. Few are chosen would be few make the commitment to Christ and are actually chosen by him. Um, the Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. And so that's what I think that this particular um, this particular passage, this particular saying is talking about. Uh, I believe that we are, We the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus told the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I think that's because in John 6, the Bible says, no one comes to the son unless the father draws him. So your whole idea to come to Christ is God drawing you, but that doesn't mean everybody that's drawn by God comes to Christ. The Bible also says God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it says that twice in two different places. And if God desires all to be saved and God was going to get his will no matter what, then everybody would be saved. But we live in a world where we could say sin isn't God's will. Rebellion isn't God's will. And so many are called and few are chosen. The only ones who are chosen are those who believe. The call goes out to the world. But when you choose to believe, then you are saved. Romans 10 says if you call out on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Jesus said, if you believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will not die. But even if you do die, then you will live. So the those who believe are the ones who are chosen. So God chooses those who believe, but the call goes out to all who would believe him and trust in him, all right? So I, I think that that's the answer and hopefully that helps uh, Kimberly, I appreciate that. It's um certainly not that God hasn't chosen some to be saved. If God chose for men to come to Christ through belief, then how come people, well, how come people would speak against God for doing that? And that's the way that God said it. If you can't choose to believe and God gave you a chance to choose to believe and you can't, but God says, whosoever would come, then there's something that's not jiving right. And for me, that's the whole Calvinistic viewpoint. I used to really struggle with it. I don't struggle with it anymore. I I see clearly now, I believe what the Bible says about committing your life to Christ. All right, so thank you very much. Um, And and Kimberly says, you're very courageous to take our questions like this. I, I appreciate that, Kimberly. I don't know how courageous that is, but yeah, I do. Um, th- the biggest part is, you know, being able to admit I don't have all the answers. I don't think that anybody answering questions has all of the answers. You just try to work through them the best you can and sometimes try to come, you know, think things through a little bit and come to the right place. But thank you, Kimberly. I really appreciate that. Um, so Adam says, Pastor, I'm struggling with finding my spiritual calling. How do I know what God has called me to do? Should this be obvious? Or does this take some time? Thank you. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. And I understand it. Uh, We want to be used by God and we want to use the gifts that God's given us, especially when we see things like the parable of the talents, where he wants us to use what you and I have been given. So I would say the very first thing that you should do is find something you're interested in and then begin to do it. And I don't know that you have to hit the bullseye right away. But if you're interested in new believers, then start working with new believers. If you're interested in teaching kids, then then go to the Sunday school and start to teach kids. And step out in faith and take a step. Begin to do it. And then let God direct you and guide you into what he has planned for you and the purpose that God has for you. Uh, I I heard Elizabeth Elliott say, I went to go see her speak at Casa Adobe's church, a church here in Tucson. And I heard her say being used by God or, or being led by God is like trying to steer a parked car. If you're not doing anything, it's like trying to steer a parked car. Once you get the car going, you can steer it. But when it's sitting still, you just can't figure it out. And so if you're kind of frozen and waiting Boy, I want to be used by God, but I don't know where. Then step out and start to be used by him. One of the first things that I did was um, I, I wanted to play the guitar. And I learned how to play the guitar. I could play the guitar. I don't know if I still can or not, but I could back then. And I thought, maybe I'll, maybe I'll lead worship. And so I asked some friends over and I said, let's have a time of worshiping God. And after about two songs, they were like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore (laughs) because I was so bad at it. I really wanted to be used by God. I wanted to lead people before the throne, but I wasn't gifted in that. Another thing I really wanted to do was counsel. In fact, I used to tell people before, I still tell them I want to be a pastor, but I would tell people, I think I'm going to be a counselor. I think I'm going to go to school to become a counselor. But I found I'm not a really good counselor. not really gifted in that. I have friends who are, we have pastors at the church who are so gifted in counseling. I have the gift of teaching and I end up wanting to teach people. It's like, okay, you're struggling in your marriage. Look, I've got this, four, the, You have got four points I wanna to talk to you about, You know, instead of really just being able to counsel them through it. Now I've gotten better in time, but I'm not a counselor. I'm a pastor and I'm a teacher. And those are my strengths. My strengths are pastoring people, encouraging people, getting them fed, making sure they're right with God. Those are my strengths. So as you start to move and do the things that God wants you to do, or you step out and say, I think God wants me to do this, you're going to be able to be directed. And it's never a bad thing to start something and then go, this isn't what God wants, I'm never afraid to hit the reverse button and to say, this isn't what God wanted, I thought this is what God wanted in my life, but this isn't what God wants. So if you're going to teach Sunday school, yeah, you want to go in and you want to, um, you want to, you don't want to bail out and leaving them in a lurch after you've took it for a while, but you may take it and realize this isn't for me, you may go ahead and give a time that you're going to quit and, um, and go and, and and find something else to do. But there's a lot of different things to do, a lot of different ways to be involved. Uh, there can be street witnessing, there can be um, ministries of helps, administration, There's so many different things, and it would depend on what your gift is as well, Adam. So thank you very much for asking your question. And I really do hope that you find where God wants you to be and what God wants you to be doing. All right. And we have a question here from YouTube. Anatonia, Um, what did you mean when you said Jesus doesn't forgive all sins? Or did I hear you wrong? So I'm trying to think when I said that. um, There is the unforgivable sin, which is the constant rejection of Jesus. And that's will not be forgiven. Uh, Now, I think either I misspoke or you heard me wrong. And I wouldn't take I misspoke off the table. All right. Sometimes I say things that people will ask me later. I'll go, did I say that? And if I said it, I certainly didn't mean it. Um, So, I don't think there's any sin that cannot be forgiven if you come to him and confess and repent, that he'll forgive you of every sin no matter what. And sometimes I don't necessarily like this. What if there's a mass murderer that repents and God forgives them and gives them heaven? But the blood of Jesus and the sufficiency of Christ and the work of the cross is sufficient enough for anyone and all of my sins have been forgiven. And so, yeah, I don't know when I said that, and I didn't mean it, if I said it. All right, so maybe you heard me wrong. Maybe I misspoke. Not quite sure. All right, so we have a question again from Fact Check These Hands. Um, Once we're in heaven, do you believe we will have the opportunity to hang out with Jesus one-on-one since he is omniscient? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I would think so, but I certainly would, you know, want to try to go to the scriptures to try to figure these things out. Um, I know we have opportunity to walk with him today, right? We can fellowship with him. So I wouldn't think that heaven would be more restrictive than here. So, if God can be with me when I'm praying quietly in a room and with you, fact check these hands, when you're praying quietly in a room, then why in heaven wouldn't God be able to be with me, Jesus be able to be with me on a walk, and with you as well? Now, I realize that we're talking about the physical body of Jesus, and that's where things become tough, and I'm afraid I just don't have an answer to that. I don't know if there is an answer to that. There are certain things that I think, you know, gosh, I hope so. I mean, we've got all of eternity, but if Jesus is hanging out with me and he can't be hanging out with someone else, is that going to create a problem? What kind of a problem is that going to end up creating? All right. So thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate that. Um, so we have a, another question from Jari. Jari, good to see you again. Follow up. Abraham's half sister was Sarah. So when he told Pharaoh it was his sister, it was a half-truth question mark. Yes. Yeah, he was telling half the truth. But his purpose for lying was not like Rahab or the, the handmaidens for the children of Israel in Egypt. His purpose for lying was out of fear. And so Abraham was never right in the, from the very beginning. He was trying to protect himself by lying in that situation, and it put Sarah in danger, and God had to intervene. And not only did he do it once, he did it twice. There were two different times that he did the same thing. And and I, I mean, maybe that's the way things were handled in that day. Maybe that's the way Abraham handled them. But Sarah was extremely beautiful. And so he was like, so these guys, does it take you, kill me and take you, then say you're my sister, kind of a, a half-truth kind of a thing there. But I think it was out of fear, out of a lack of trust in God. The first time God had called him into the land of of, uh, Israel, he went to the land. Excuse me. He went to the land, and then there was a famine in the land. And so he left. And I'm thinking he probably could have avoided, avoided the problem with Pharaoh by not leaving the land and trusting that God said, go to the land. And maybe the fact that there was a famine in the land right away was a test just to say, what are you doing? I think God tests us in a lot of different ways. We know that God tested Abraham and that God was patient with Abraham. But Jari, I do believe that that was a lie that was wrong by Abraham and probably could have avoided it by just staying in the land and trusting God. If he, even if he said, you're my sister and we're going to go down here and trust God, God could have been able to protect him and to protect Sarah. But he thought he needed to get into his flesh to be able to protect himself. And I think that's problematic. And I think the same thing is true today. We get ahead of things. We try to manipulate things. We try to take care of things uh, before we get to a place where we're in trouble. And instead of just trusting in God, and maybe God does the same thing today, where he tests us to see whether or not we are really going to um, put our trust in the Lord. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that, Jari. So we have a question from B. Smith. B. says, is the United States mentioned during the end times? Um, Not overtly in any way, shape or form. So B, I don't know what that means. Does it mean that we are not around? Does it mean that we will be destroyed? Does it mean we're irrelevant during that time? Uh, There is a couple of references that looks like it could be the United States. One of them is when, during the Gog and Magog War, the rest of the world goes, what are you doing? They don't do anything. They just go, what are you doing? And the young lions are mentioned there. And it's thought that England would be the lion, we would be the young lions, and that we might be mentioned as going, I don't know. Others have tried to fit us into Mystery Babylon, but the whole world gets rich on the United States and the United States is destroyed as part of Mystery Babylon and this mystery false religion that comes up in the book of Revelation. Again, I don't see it. For for the most part, I look and go, I don't really see the U.S. in the Bible. There are a few other um, obscure places that people bring up that it possibly could be the United States. Um, but I don't see it. And if it isn't, then why not? And maybe it's because we do become irrelevant. I think the United States is this experiment of freedom, probably one of the greatest nations that this world has ever known. And we are slowly, maybe quickly now, turning our back on God, no longer following him, no longer allowing prayer in the school, no longer seeking him. And I think that that could be problematic for us um, maybe the abortion issue will come into play and there will be judgment from God because we will not protect the most innocent among us. And, um, so yeah, um, we don't, we don't really see it in the end times. All right. So thank you very much, B. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a follow-up question from Empress Kimberly, Kimberly. Thank you again. Kimberly says, could that passage be talking about something other than salvation? Maybe many are called to evangelize and few are chosen, Um, especially in missions or apostles or John the Baptist. I tell you what, Kimberly, I'm not quite sure where that passage is at. But if we could figure that out, we could take a look at it, I bet the context will be able to help us. so if, if someone could look that up and then see if we could take a look at it. Um, cause I don't know, maybe I don't, I kind of think it's in the context of salvation and not in any other context and we'll, we'll be able to look it up, but I'm probably going to say off the top of my head, no, I don't think that it could be talking about other things. It's talking about salvation. Like Jesus, you haven't chosen me; I've chosen you. Uh, but I, we we need to find it, and um, maybe I can do that really quickly. Let me just see if I can find that here. Many are called, but few are chosen. Scripture. Let's see if I can find that passage. All right, many are called, and few are chosen. Matthew twenty two fourteen. So, let me go ahead and look up Matthew twenty two 14. All right. Matthew 22, 14. Let's try to find the context here. All right. So, this is all Jesus speaking here in Matthew uh, 22. Mm, he's, telling, he's telling an account. So, let's go ahead and bring it up on screen for you, and let's read it together. So, uh, this is Matthew 22. We're going to read from verse 1 on down to 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for a son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out another servant, saying, Tell those who are invited. So I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, the fatted calf are killed, and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding. So there's the call, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another his business. And they rest seized the, his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then he said to the servants of the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not willing. Therefore go into the highways and, uh, and as go therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So these servants went out into the highways and gathered together all who were found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guest he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment so he said to him friend how do you come in uh, here without a wedding garment and he was speechless then the king said to the servant behold b- uh, bind him hand a foot take him away and cast him into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen so I think to answer your question, Kimberly, is that, let's see if we're here, I don't know where your question went to. All right, to answer your question, Kimberly, um, I don't think it means anything else. He's telling this parable of a wedding feast. He's talking about the the Jews were initially invited, the Jewish people, and he came into his own and his own rejected him. So, he went out into the highways and byways and invited everybody in, good or bad, and that's salvation. But you got to have a a wedding garment on. You have to be saved. You have to be cleansed. You have to be right with God. Otherwise, you'll be cast into outer darkness. So many are called and few are chosen. So I think that that is the um, application of that, not an application to many are called to be evangelists and not. I think it's dealing with salvation. And most of the stuff, those kind of parables that Jesus told were dealing with the rejection of Israel and the door being opened up for others to be able to come to Christ. All right, so thank you, Kimberly, I appreciate that. We have a question here from Gloria. Gloria says, hi, Pastor Robert. Hello, Gloria, how are you? Uh, Jude 1.5, in some translations says, Lord and others, Jesus. Did Jude believe it was Lord Jesus who led the Israelites out of Egypt? God bless you and thank you. All right, well, that's an interesting question. Let's take a look at the book of Jude, uh, verse 5. Let's read it here. I'll bring it up on the screen for you. So verse 5 says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. So I take it that the Lord having saved the people out of the hands of Egypt, that some translations say Jesus. I don't know which translations say that. This is where I would pull up Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible and I would read down through there to see what translation said it. But what I do wanna do is go ahead and bring up my Strong's and just see what the Texas Receptus says. Remember, when you're looking at the Strong's Concordance, you're getting a certain set of manuscripts. The King James and the New King James. There were, it was translated in 1611. There have been a lot of manuscripts found since then that a lot of the more modern versions will take into play. So I don't know what translations say what when it comes to this. All right. But let's just go ahead and see what the Texas receptus says in verse five. Um, we're going to click on the word Lord here. All right. So, it's the Greek word for Kyrios. Let me go ahead and put this on the screen for you. Um, it's the Greek word for curios, supreme in authority, um, master, God, Lord, master. So, I don't know that we get it from that particular manuscript. Maybe there's some other evidence that's out there that I don't know of that I'd be able to give you an answer, um, but I don't think that I'm going to be able to do that. Uh, Kimberly, all right. I'm sorry, um, Gloria. Gloria, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that now. Um, I'm not sure why some Bibles use that translation and why others don't. And um, again, if you could give me the translation that says Jesus, I'd be really interested in that. I'm really interested in this question. So um, maybe, I mean, Kyrios is referred to Jesus a lot. The Lord is referred to Jesus. So maybe they just made that connection with how many times um And I wonder how often Jude, when he uses the word Kyrios, is referring to Jesus. So probably, probably a lot. Um, let me just go back and see if I can see anything here. Um, I'm just looking for his reference to our Lord Jesus. Um, so you know what, I mean, let's go back here and look again a little bit more. Let's read this more in context. <clears throat> so th- maybe the context will give us something. For certain men having come, all right, for certain men having crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out of this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny our Lord Jesus Christ, and deny our only Lord and God and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so there's the word Lord used twice right in front of this. And then it says, but I want to remind you though you once knew this that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day. Uh So, yeah, maybe there's some, you know, maybe just looking back at verse 4, the end of verse 4, that they deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go back to my Strong's Concordance, and I just want to take a look at those two words in the Strong's and see if both of those words are curious. All right, so this is uh, the Lord God, and this is a different word. This is interesting. Okay. You better bring this up on the stage here. So I mean up on the screen here. Um, so it says and denying the only Lord God. So I click on Lord and we get the word, um, despotus despotus and, um, an absolute ruler, Lord master. Then let's go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Kyrios. So maybe I understand a little bit why. I'm not sure if I were heading up those who were working on translations. If Jesus is referred to as Kyrios right before it, and God being distinct would be talking about the Father using the word despos in the Greek, then using Kyrios in the later on verse, maybe they connected that with Jesus. And so... Brought Jesus over to it. I'm just looking at context, and I think that's probably got some connection. Um, I would like to find out, though. I'm going to take, a, I'm going to look it up and find out what versions use the word Jesus on there, and see if I can gain any more information about that Gloria, and talk about it at another Q and A at some point. All right. So if you could find that what version says uh, Jesus there, I'd be interested in that. All right. You can find it and put it in the comment section here. I would love to see it, Albert. Good to see you. Albert has a question. Um, I've heard a pastor say that God never says no to our prayers. He either says yes or wait. I have something better for you. Would you agree with that? Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Albert. I would definitely not agree with that, because what if I'm asking for something that's not God's will? We're taught art to pray our father who is in heaven. hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Before we ever get to any asking, any supplications, uh, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us of our sins, lead us not in the way of the evil one, uh, deliver us from the evil one, uh, lead me not into temptation, all of those things we ask, we get your will be done, your kingdom come. And a lot of people have asked for things that God said no to. I've asked for things that God has said no to. And... Um, When they say, God never says no, totally disagree with that to our prayers. Then he says, either says yes or wait, or I have something better for you. Well, or I have something better for you would be a no. And a lot of times we just don't understand it. We pray, I I think specifically of my late wife, Lisa, she got stage four lung cancer. We prayed that she would be healed and thought God was going to do it laid hands on her, anointed her with oil, and God healed her ultimately by taking her home. So, God had something different for her, but God definitely said no when it came to saving her life. God had that appointed time, and God took her home, even though we thought that God was going to heal her and and really believed it. But God had something different. So, I think this part, or I have something better for you, is kind of connected to no no, I got something better for you. What God has for me is always better. It's just that I don't believe it. So I'm asking, I really want something without being patient enough to go, okay, God, you want the very best for me. So yeah, I wouldn't agree with that statement. God says no all the time. And we could go back to scripture and we could see people asking God for things and God saying no all the time. We see Paul, he said, I prayed for the thorn in my flesh to be removed three times. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So God said, no, you're, you're gonna live with it. My grace for you to be able to live with this is sufficient for you. All right, Albert, so um, I, I, we, when you're preaching, one of the things you wanna do as a pastor is make sure that you don't speak for God when God hasn't spoken. This is one of the first things to do. You want to be able to look into Scripture. And this is why I think when we start searching for things and we want to find something new and we want to, you know, want to find something that I think we're in danger, I think instead we just want to find out what the Bible says. We want to study what it says and what it speaks to us. And we want to do the things that are there. And um, I think that this kind of a statement, God never says no, is just not true. We see God saying no all the time in Scripture. People asking for things and God not doing them. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to see you, Tyler, by the way. Thank you for showing up. Hope everything's going well. Uh, We have a service in about 70 minutes. And um, we're in the book of Luke. We're talking about where Jesus tells them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Our Q&A on Saturday. We'll start with questions or or you can ask questions about that study, about that passage next Saturday. We're trying to really connect the Q&A's with the Bible studies. We'll still be able to ask any question that you want to ask, but we're trying to connect them more, make this an extension of the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson and being able to interact with people and the questions that they have about the study. So if you watch the study a little bit later on today, and you have questions about it, then go ahead and submit those questions. And we will take a look at them. All right? So um, thank you guys for being here today. I'm just going to take a look here and see if we've got any more questions. Um, so we have a question from Lisa. Lisa joins us from Facebook. And she asked this question a little bit earlier. I told her i deal with it at a QA. and a If a person commits suicide, if they ask God to forgive them before they do it, Will he forgive them? Again, a really difficult question. Let me just back up a little bit and and maybe deal with this question before I answer this particular part, question for it. Um, As Christians, we're supposed to die to ourselves and live for Christ. Can someone get so distraught or so have, mental illness, that they end up taking their own life, even though they're a genuine Christian? And I think the answer to that would be yes. And I think because they're saved, we don't have to ask for forgiveness for every sin before it's forgiven. Right? I mean, what if I'm driving down the road and a car truck pulls out in front of me, The last words out of my mouth are a corrupt word. I cuss and then I die. And then I get to heaven and God says, I wish I could let you in. But because you use corrupt language and the Bible says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, that's not forgiven. And I can't let you in. Well, of course that sins forgiven and covered in the blood. And so if someone is genuine and they get into such a distraught position, that they take their own lives, I think it's possible. And when I talk about this, people will get upset at me because they'll say, well, you're giving people, um, a license to be able to kill themselves and still go to heaven. I'm really not because there's some things that are really messed up. If you take your own life about your relationship with God, and I don't think that you can have any assurance or surety. I just see God as a compassionate God. And I see that people can, thoughts can get so out of whack and we can head down the wrong road. So, if a person commits suicide and asks God to forgive them before they did it, will he forgive them? The question will be, is he a genuine Christian? That's the real question. Not whether or not he asked to be forgiven before he did it. If he's a real genuine Christian and for whatever reason just takes his life, what a sad and tragic thing. When you could have just, you could have lived your the rest of your life for God. You could have said, I'm gonna serve you and live for you. I don't care about my own life anymore. I surrender myself wholeheartedly to you. He could have done that, but ended up taking his life, which seems to be selfish. And I think most often, those who kill themselves are not Christian. And I, I just refuse to judge a person that has confessed Christ that has killed themselves. I just don't wanna judge them. I wanna have the compassion that Christ has for people. And um, so hopefully that helps. Um, and if someone is there, if you're, if you're thinking about, I'm not saying you, Lisa, but if someone is there thinking about suicide and you're hearing this now, give your life up for Christ. Start living for Him. Find the rewards that come for a deep life in Christ. Are you feeling unfulfilled? You're feeling like you can't can't go on anymore? You're feeling frustrated? Whatever it is, it's not that bad. And whatever it is, you can come to Christ and live for him. Dying to yourself is the way. Not dying, but dying to yourself and living for Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. So let me just encourage you, if you're thinking along those lines, to let God really touch your heart and start living for him. You'll find a fulfillment that you do not find in living for yourself. You've probably gotten caught up in the wrong thing if you're thinking about suicide in that way today. So thank you very much, Lisa. I appreciate uh, your question and um, very heartfelt. All right, so um we have a question for Fact Check These Hands. Let's see how much longer we've got, a few minutes. Fact Check These Hands, other than trying to gain more followers, what else do you believe motivates some pastor to go woke? Pastors to go woke? I don't know, not knowing Jesus, I don't know. Um it I think that I would have to define exactly what woke is. If you're talking about progressive Christianity, I think there are some progressives who have a relationship with Christ. And I just think they're greatly misunderstood. I, I, I think they greatly misunderstand what Christ is about. And I think that they're heading down the wrong road. Um, I don't know that you gain followers by being woke. If you tell someone, listen, um, the God accepts everyone. God doesn't need you to go to church. The word of God isn't really the word of God. All of these are woke positions. Um, then why do what people keep going to church? If you teach people that the Bible isn't really true, and you don't really have to answer for God, and you don't have to study the Word of God, you just got to find the truth within yourself. Just look inside yourself, and pretty soon, why would you go? I'm going to go to that church. This is what progressive Christianity does: is it leads people away from Christ? It doesn't lead them into another. Um, form of or another denomination. It leads them away from Christ. It's exactly what the liberal church did back in the early nineteenth century. The early the the liberal churches emptied out, and the progressive churches today empty out. It, um, it's be sad to say, but if you want followers, you know what? If you want followers, then just quit it. Stop trying. The Bible says don't do anything out of selfish ambition. I think the reason people go woke is because they're in an environment where they're getting supported in that. Uh, they don't understand and they haven't really been trained well in the scriptures and how to how to approach the word of God. They've got some problems with certain passages about judgment and about hell that they are trying to look to their own heart to try to figure it out about about universalism and some other things. So, trying to gain followers, I don't think really comes into play. But there could be a lot of reasons why pastors would go woke. fact, check these hands. And I think it's always a mistake. Uh, So, um, Jari, I'm going to skip out on Mystery Babylon right now. We'll come back to that question a little bit later on. I'm going to take one more question. And... um, and this comes from Keeping uh, keeping It Real, and this will be our last question for today. Keeping It Real says, What does the Lord mean by redeeming the time? Is it a sin to waste time watching TV, etc.? No, I don't believe it's a sin. Um, it depends on what you're watching. Um, I think we have freedom in Christ. Tremendous amount of freedom. Who the Son of Man sets free, we're free Indeed. Paul said, don't use your freedom, your liberty as an occasion to sin, but use it as an occasion for edification, for lifting up, for glorifying God. So we can do things that are sinful with our time. We can do things that are neutral with our time. We can do things that are that help us spiritually. And I don't think that we have to, every single waking moment, be doing something that edifies um, our spirit, but... We are to do all that we do to the glory of God. So that means I don't want to be doing things that aren't glorifying Him and lifting Him up. What does it mean to redeem the time? It means that, you know, for me, what I think about when I do it is, what am I listening to when I'm driving? So, hey, I've got a couple of playlists on my phone, Um, James Taylor, Jim Croce, some Cat Stevens, some back in the early 70s kind of stuff, when I first was turned on at all the music, those were the things I listened to. Um, a little bit later on, Doobie Brothers, Kansas, some of those kind of things. And sometimes I like to listen to that stuff. And, But most of the time, I want to listen to things that are going to edify me spiritually. I listen to podcasts. Um, I listen to teachings. I listen to um, well, mostly mostly just different podcasts, and I redeem the time. I've got all this time driving back and forth between campuses, so I redeem the time. So, redeem your time. Uh, don't waste all of it. It doesn't mean you certainly can't sit down and relax and not do anything, right? That would be legalistic. But you want to use your liberty to be able to strengthen your spirit and to grow in Christ. So, I think there's a real balance with it, but I would never say someone that just kind of wants to kick back and relax would be doing something that is sinful, it would take something else to be more sinful. All right, so thank you very much, keeping it real. I appreciate it, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for joining us today on our q and I hope you guys are blessed, stay close to Jesus, keep loving him, keep searching the scriptures. Um, love you guys, God bless you. We'll see you in a service just an hour from now. We'll be having a Bible study out of Luke chapter 20. Look forward to seeing you guys there. I. Am